section forty of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lely craik chapter four part sixteen the elizabethan literature of what is commonly called our elizabethan literature the greater portion appertains to the reign not of elizabeth but of james to the seventeenth not to the sixteenth century the common name nevertheless is the fair and proper one it sprung up in the age of elizabeth and was mainly the product of influences which belonged to that age although their effect extended into another it was born of and ripened by that sunny morning of a new day great eliza's golden time when a general sense of security had given men ease of mind and disposed them to freedom of thought while the economical advancement of the country put life and spirit into everything and its growing power and renown filled and elevated the national heart but such periods of quiet and prosperity seem only to be intellectually productive when they have been preceded and ushered in by a time of uncertainty and struggle which has tried men's spirits the contrast seems to be wanted to make the favourable influences be felt and tell or the faculty required must come in part out of the strife and contention the literature of our elizabethan age more emphatically may be said to have had this double parentage if that brilliant day was its mother the previous night of storm was its father the mirror for magistrates our classical elizabethan poetry and other literature dates only from about the middle of the reign most of what was produced in the earlier half of it constrained harsh and immature still bears upon it the impress of the preceding barbarism nearly coincident with its commencement is the first appearance of a singular work the mirror for magistrates it is a collection of narratives of the lives of various remarkable english historical personages taken in general with little more embellishment than their reduction to a metrical form from the common popular chronicles and the idea of it appears to have been borrowed from a latin work of boccaccio's which had been translated and versified many years before by lydgate under the title of the fall of princes it was planned and begun it is supposed about the year fifteen fifty seven by thomas sackville afterwards distinguished as a statesman and ennobled by the titles of lord buckhurst and earl of dorset but sackville soon found himself obliged to relinquish the execution of his extensive design which contemplated a survey of the whole range of english history from william the conqueror to the end of the war of the roses to other hands the two writers to whom he recommended the carrying on of the work were richard baldwin who was in orders and had already published a metrical version of the song of solomon and george ferrers who was a person of some rank having sat in parliament in the time of henry the eighth but who had latterly been chiefly known as a composer of occasional interludes for the diversion of the court 
it is a trait of the times that although a member of lincoln's inn and known both as a legal and an historical author ferris was in fifteen fifty two to three appointed by edward the sixth to preside over the christmas revels at the royal palace of greenwich in the office of lord of misrule stowe tells us that upon this occasion he so pleasantly and wisely behaved himself that the king had great delight in his pastimes baldwin and ferrers called other writers to their assistance among whom were thomas churchyard fayer the translator of virgil etc and the book in its first form and extent was published in a quarto volume in fifteen fifty nine the work says baldwin in his dedication to the nobility of a subsequent and enlarged edition of it in fifteen sixty three was begun and part of it printed in queen mary's time but hindered by the lord chancellor that then was nevertheless through the means of my lord stafford the first part was licensed and imprinted the first year of the reign of this our most noble and virtuous queen and dedicated then to your honours with this preface since which time although i have been called to another trade of life yet my good lord stafford hath not ceased to call upon me to publish so much as i had gotten at other men's hands so that through his lordship's earnest means i have now set forth another part containing as little of mine own as the first part doth of other men's the mirror for magistrates immediately acquired and for a considerable time retained great popularity a third edition of it was published in fifteen seventy one a fourth with the addition of a series of new lives from the fabulous history of the early britons by john higgins in fifteen seventy four a fifth in fifteen eighty seven a sixth with further additions in sixteen ten by richard nichols assisted by thomas blenner hassett whose contributions however had been separately printed in fifteen seventy eight the copiousness of the plan into which any narrative might be inserted belonging to either the historical or legendary part of the national annals and that without any trouble in the way of connection or adaptation had made the work a receptacle for the contributions of all the ready versifiers of the day a common or parish green as it were on which a fair was held to which any one who chose might bring his wares or rather a sort of continually growing monument or cairn to which every man added his stone or a little separate specimen of brick and mortar who conceived himself to have any skill in building the lofty rhyme there were scarcely any limits to the size to which the book might have grown except the mutability of the public taste which will permit no one thing good or bad to go on for ever the mirror for magistrates however for all its many authors is of note in the history of our poetry for nothing else which it contains except the portions contributed by its contriver sackville consisting only of one legend that of henry duke of buckingham richard the third's famous accomplice and victim and grandfather of lord stafford the great patron of the work and the introduction or induction as it is called prefixed to that narrative which however is said to have been originally intended to stand at the head of the whole work the induction begins with a picture of winter which is drawn with vivid colours and a powerful pencil then follows some brief reflections suggested by the faded fields and scattered summer flowers on the instability of all things here below but suddenly the poet perceives that the night is drawing on faster and thereupon redoubles his pace when he continues in black all clad there fell before my face a piteous white whom woe had all for wast firth from her iron the crystal tears outbrast and sighing sore her hands she wrong and fold 
tearing her hair that ruth was to behold her body small for withered and forspent as is the stalk with summer's drought oppressed her wilked face with woeful tears besprent her colour pale and as it seemed her best in woe and plaint reposed was her rest and as the stone that drops of water wears so dented were her cheeks with fall of tears i stood aghast beholding all her plight tween dread and dolor so distrained in heart that while my knees upstarted with the sight the tears outstreamed for sorrow of her smart but when i saw no end that could apart the deadly dole which she so sore did make with doleful voice then thus to her i spake unwrap thy woes whatever white thou be and stint be time to spill thyself with plaint tell what thou art and whence for well i see thou canst not dure with sorrow thus attaint and with that word of sorrow all for faint she looked up and prostrate as she lay with piteous sound lo thus she gan to say alas i wretch whom thus thou seest distrained with wasting woes that never shall aslake sorrow i am in endless torments pained among the furies and the infernal lake where pluto god of hell so grisly blake doth hold his throne and leave these deadly taste doth reave remembrance of each thing for past whence come i am the dreary destiny and luckless lot for to bemoan of those whom fortune in this maze of misery of wretched chance most woeful mirrors chose that when thou seest how lightly they did lose their pomp their power and that they thought most sure thou mayest soon deem no earthly joy may dure sorrow conducts the poet to the region of departed spirits and then follows a long succession of allegoric pictures including remorse dread or fear revenge misery that is avarice care sleep old age malady famine death war debate or strife etc all drawn with extraordinary strength of imagination and with the command of expressive picturesque and melodious language nothing equal or approaching to which had till now been seen in our poetry except only in chaucer and he can scarcely be said to have written in the same english the capabilities of which were thus brought out by sackville both for his poetical genius and in the history of the language sackville and his two poems in the mirror for magistrates more especially this induction must be considered as forming the connecting link or bridge between chaucer and spenser between the canterbury tales and the fairy queen for the sake of affording a means of comparison with the style and manner of the extracts we shall presently have to give from the latter work we will add here another of sackville's delineations and next in order sad old age we found his beard all hoar his eyes hollow and blind with drooping cheer still pouring on the ground as on the place where nature him assigned to rest when that the sisters had untwined his vital thread and ended with their knife the fleeting course of fast declining life there heard we him with broken hollow plaint rue with himself his end approaching fast and all for naught his wretched mind torment with sweet remembrance of his pleasures past 
and fresh delights of lusty youth for wast recounting which how would he sob and shriek and to be young again of jove beseek but and the cruel fate so fixed be that time forepast cannot return again this one request of jove yet prayed he that in such withered plight and wretched pain as eld accompanied with her loathsome train had brought on him all were it woe and grief he might awhile yet linger forth his leaf and not so soon descend into the pit where death when he the mortal corpse hath slain with reckless hand engraved doth ever cover it thereafter never to enjoy again the gladsome light but in the ground he lain in depth of darkness waste and where to naught as he had ne'er into the world been brought but who had seen him sobbing how he stood unto himself and how he would bemoan his youth forepast as though it wrought him good to talk of youth all were his youth foregone he would have mused and marvelled much whereon this wretched age should life desire so fain and knows full well life doth but length his pain crook-backed he was tooth-shaken and blear-eyed went on three feet and sometime crept on four with old lame bones that rattled by his side his scalp all piled and he with eld forlore his withered fists still knocking at death's door fumbling and drivelling as he draws his breath for brief the shape and messenger of death nothing is wanting to sackville that belongs to force either of conception or of expression in his own world of the sombre and sad also he is almost as great an inventor as he is a colorist and spencer has been indebted to him for many hints as well as for example and inspiration in a general sense what most marks the immaturity of his style is a certain operose and constrained air a stiffness and hardness of manner like what we find in the works of the earliest school of the italian painters before raphael and michelangelo arose to convert the art from a painful repetition or mimicry of reality into a process of creation from the timid slave of nature into her glorified rival of the flow and variety the genuine spirit of light in life that we have in spencer and shakespeare there is little in sackville his poetry ponderous gloomy and monotonous is still oppressed by the shadows of night and we see that although the darkness is retiring the sun has not yet risen origin of the regular drama from the first introduction of dramatic representations in england probably as early at least as the beginning of the twelfth century down to the beginning of the fifteenth or perhaps somewhat later the only species of drama known was that style the miracle or miracle play the subject of the miracle plays were all taken from the histories of the old and new testament or from the legends of saints and martyrs and indeed it is probable that their original design was chiefly to instruct the people in religious knowledge they were often acted as well as written by clergymen and were exhibited in abbeys and churches and in churchyards on sundays or other holidays it appears to have been not till some time after their first introduction that miracle plays came to be annually represented under the direction and at the expense of the guilds or trading companies of towns as at chester and elsewhere the characters or dramatis personae 
of the miracle plays though sometimes supernatural or legendary were always actual personages historical or imaginary and in that respect these primitive plays approached nearer to the regular drama than those by which they were succeeded the morals or moral plays in which not a history but an apologue was represented and in which the characters were all allegorical the moral plays are traced back to the early part of the reign of henry the sixth and they appear to have gradually arisen out of the miracle plays in which of course characters very nearly approaching in their nature to the impersonated vices and virtues of the new species of drama must have occasionally appeared the devil of the miracles for example would very naturally suggest the vice of the morals which latter however it is to be observed also retained the devil of their predecessors who was too amusing and popular a character to be discarded nor did the moral plays altogether put down the miracle plays in many of the provincial towns at least the latter continued to be represented almost to as late a date as the former finally by a process of natural transition very similar to that by which the sacred and supernatural characters of the religious drama had been converted into the allegorical personifications of the moral plays these last gradually becoming less and less vague and shadowy at length about the middle of the sixteenth century boldly assumed life and reality giving birth to the first examples of regular tragedy and comedy both moral plays however and even the more ancient miracle plays continued to be occasionally performed down to the very end of the sixteenth century one of the last dramatic representations at which elizabeth was present was a moral play entitled the contention between liberality and prodigality which was performed before her majesty in sixteen hundred or sixteen o one this production was printed in sixteen o two and was probably written not long before that time it has been said to have been the joint production of thomas lodge and robert green the last of whom died in fifteen ninety two the only three manuscripts of the chester miracle plays now extant were written in sixteen hundred sixteen o four and sixteen o seven most probably while the plays still continued to be acted there is evidence that the ancient annual miracle plays were acted at tewkesbury at least till fifteen eighty five at coventry till fifteen ninety one at newcastle till fifteen ninety eight and at kendall down even to the year sixteen o three as has been observed however by mr collier the latest and best historian of the english drama the moral plays were enabled to keep possession of the stage so long as they did partly by means of the approaches they had for some time been making to a more improved species of composition and partly because under the form of allegorical fiction and abstract character the writers introduced matter which covertly touched upon public events popular prejudices and temporary opinions he mentions in particular the moral entitled the three ladies of london printed in fifteen eighty four and its continuation the three lords and three ladies of london which appeared in fifteen ninety both by r w as belonging to this class interludes of john haywood meanwhile long before the earliest of these dates the ancient drama had in other hands assumed wholly a new form mr collier appears to consider the interludes of john haywood the earliest of which must have been written before fifteen twenty one as first exhibiting the moral play in a state of transition to the regular tragedy and comedy john haywood's dramatic productions he says almost form a class by themselves they are neither miracle plays nor moral plays but what may be properly and strictly called interludes a species of writing of which he has a claim to be considered the inventor although the term interlude was applied generally to theatrical productions in the reign of edward the fourth a notion of the nature of these compositions may be collected from the plot of one of them 
a merry play between the partner and the friar the curate and neighbour pratt printed in fifteen thirty three of which mr collier gives the following account a partner and a friar have each obtained leave of the curate to use his church the one for the exhibition of his relics and the other for the delivery of a sermon the object of both being the same that of procuring money the friar arrives first and is about to commence his discourse when the partner enters and disturbs him each is desirous of being heard and after many vain attempts by force of lungs they proceed to force of arms kicking and cuffing each other unmercifully the curate called by the disturbance in his church endeavours without avail to part the combatants he therefore calls in neighbour pratt to his assistance and while the curate seizes the friar pratt undertakes to deal with the partner in order that they may set them in the stocks it turns out that both the friar and the partner are too much for their assailants and the latter after a sound rubbing are glad to come to a composition by which the former are allowed quietly to depart here then we have a dramatic fable or incident at least conducted not by allegorical personifications but by characters of real life which is the essential difference that distinguishes the true tragedy or comedy from the mere moral haywood's interludes however of which there are two or three more of the same description with this besides others partaking more of the allegorical character are all only single acts or more properly scenes and exhibit therefore nothing more than the mere rudiments or embryo of the regular comedy udall's ralph royster doister the earliest english comedy properly so called that has yet been discovered is commonly considered to be that of ralph royster doister the production of nicholas udall an eminent classical scholar in the earlier part of the sixteenth century and one of the masters first at eton and afterwards at westminster its existence was unknown till a copy was discovered in eighteen eighteen which perhaps for the title page is gone was not printed earlier than fifteen sixty six in which year thomas hackett is recorded in the register of the stationers company to have had a license for printing a play entitled ralph royster duster but the play is quoted in thomas wilson's rule of reason first printed in fifteen fifty one so that it must have been written at least fifteen or sixteen years before this hypothesis would carry it back to about the same date with the earliest of haywood's interludes and it certainly was produced while that writer was still alive and in the height of his popularity it may be observed that wilson calls udall's play an interlude which would therefore seem to have been at this time the common name for any dramatic composition as indeed it appears to have been for nearly a century preceding the author himself however in his prologue announces it as a comedy or interlude and as an imitation of the classical models of plautus and terence and in truth both in character and in plot ralph royster doister has every right to be regarded as a true comedy showing indeed in its execution the rudeness of the age but in its plan and in reference to the principle upon which it is constructed as regular and as complete as any comedy in the language it is divided into acts and scenes which very few of the moral plays are and according to mr collier's estimate the performance could not have been concluded in less time than about two hours and a half while few of the morals would require more than about an hour for their representation the dramatis personae are thirteen in all nine male and four female and the two principal ones at least ralph himself a vain thoughtless blustering fellow whose ultimately baffled pursuit of the gay and rich widow custance forms the action of the piece and his servant matthew mary greek a kind of flesh-and-blood representative of the vice of the old moral plays are strongly discriminated and drawn altogether with much force and spirit 
the story is not very ingeniously involved but it moves forward through its gradual development and onwards to the catastrophe in a sufficiently bustling lively manner and some of the situations though the humour is rather farcical than comic are very cleverly conceived and managed the language also may be said to be on the whole racy and characteristic if not very polished a few lines from a speech of one of the widow's handmaidens tibbet talk apace in a conversation with her fellow-servants on the approaching marriage of their masters may be quoted as a specimen and i heard our nurse speak of an husband to-day ready for our mistress a rich man and a gay and we shall go in our french hoods every day in our silk cassocks i warrant you fresh and gay in our trick furtigues and billaments of gold brave in our suits of change seven double fold then shall ye see tibet sires tread the moss so trim nay why said i tread ye shall see her glide and swim not lump or dee clump or dee like our spaniel rig End of section forty